Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers to humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I am thrilled to be back in the studio with you again today. Well, we just had an incredible conference. We did the Engage 2018 conference in partnership with Hoffmantown Church, my home church, and it was incredible. We had numerous world-class apologists. Dr. Gary Habermas came out and was the keynote speaker for the event. Dr. Craig Blomberg, Dr. Michael Brown, Dr. Craig Evans, and Dr. Frank Turek all did Skype Q&As. It was a fabulous time. I really, really, really enjoyed being able to uh, host it, and I hope that you'll come and be a part of the next one that we do, which I'm sure will be sooner rather than later. Today, I wanted to go back to one of the Q&As that we did at the conference. The Q&A with Frank Turk was exceptional. A lot of people loved it, and I kind of wanted to go back to that again today. So right now, we're going to cut to the Q&A with Dr. Frank Turk, and Pastor David Hopkins is doing the questioning in this segment. So here you go, question and answer with Dr. Frank Turek. All right, here is a brief bio for Dr. Frank Turek. He is the president of crossexamined.org and the host of an hour-long TV program each week called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which is based on his best-selling book that he co-authored with Norm Geisler. I highly encourage you to pick that up. It's an awesome book. He is a dynamic speaker indeed, an award-winning author, co-author of several books. Uh, he as the president of Cross-Examine, he presents powerful and entertaining evidence for Christianity at churches, high schools, and at secular college campuses that often be, uh, begin hostile to his message, the message of the gospel. If you want to check those out, they're all over YouTube. Just uh, Google Dr. Frank Turk. He has also debated several prominent atheists, including Christopher Hitchens, who's no longer on this planet. Uh, David Silverman, who's president of American Atheists. These are heavyweights in the atheist world, but no match for Dr. Frank Turek. So would you help me in giving a very warm welcome this morning to Dr. Frank Turek? There he is. Howdy, folks. Dr. Turek, just want to make sure that you can hear me okay. I got you. Go ahead. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, we are honored to have you here with us this morning, sir. And we do have some questions for you, but wanted to give you an opportunity if you had any opening remarks, any introduction that you wanted to say. Yeah, you've got the great Gary Habermas there this week. You don't need me. Gary <laughs> is the man. <laughs> You're going to enjoy Gary. I know we got in a little bit late last night, but he's on his way over there. Hey, when you get a chance, I want you to ask Gary about snakes, all right? <laughs> ask him about snakes, because Gary claims to be an expert in snakes. In fact, one, one, one time I was introducing Gary, and uh, I said, you know, when Gary comes over to our house, he goes snake hunting with our kids, and he loves snakes. In fact, 
he's he's been bitten over 200 times. And one guy said, that's an expert. <laughs> that's great. He's got a little Pentecostal blood in him, huh? That's right. He, he handles it. He, I guess he thinks the end of Mark is really in there. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Dr. Turk, we have well, probably two to 300 folks out here who are eager to get to these questions. So if that's okay with you, we'll go ahead and begin with our first one. All right. This is, how would I explain the inerrancy of scriptures to a non-believer? You don't. It's not required. In fact, uh, inerrancy is a conclusion. It's not a premise. Um, in fact, let me put it this way. This is going to sound heretical to um, people who believe in like I do, but it's not. Um, Christianity is not true because a series of documents that we put under one binding called the Bible says it's true. Christianity is true because an event occurred, the resurrection. There would be no New Testament, if it wasn't for the resurrection. In fact, do you realize that there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Of course. I mean, Paul was a Christian before the New Testament was ever written. Why was he a Christian? Because he witnessed the Jesus. Same thing with John. Same thing with Peter. Same thing with the other apostles. They were Christians because they witnessed him resurrected from the dead. In fact, this is going to sound even more crazy, but I think it's true. Christianity would still be true if the Bible never existed. Now, we wouldn't know much about it, obviously. God saw it fit to inspire the writers to write down what they saw. But it would still be true if they never wrote it down because it's based on an historical event. So you don't need inerrancy to show that Christianity is true. You don't need to believe inerrancy to be a Christian. I think you're illogical to a certain extent if you don't. Why? Why why do I believe in inerrancy? Because Jesus taught inerrancy. Just if the documents are historically reliable, you know, they don't have to be perfect in every facet. But if, if, if we know what Jesus taught because the documents are historically reliable, Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God and he promised the New Testament. So on Jesus's authority, I believe in inerrancy. And I just kind of have a personal policy that if anybody rises from the dead, I just believe whatever the guy says. All right. <laughs> Good idea. So, but now in our book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We, we cover why we think inerrancy is true. But I hasten to add, even if it's not true, Christianity is still true. In fact, when, when Gary comes in, um, Gary will tell you this. I don't want to steal the thunder. But if he doesn't say this, I want you to ask him the question. I want you to ask Gary the same question you just asked me. Because Gary will tell you when students come to him and they say, Oh, Dr. Habermas, I found an error in the Bible. You know what he says? So? What, what follows from that? that? That God doesn't exist or you're not a sinner or Jesus didn't rise from the dead? No, none of that follows from that. Even if there are errors in the text, minor errors, it doesn't mean that the Bible uh, or that the, uh, the, the basic tenets of Christianity, what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, it doesn't mean that they're false. 
Okay, so again, inerrancy is a conclusion. It's not a premise. Never require somebody believe in inerrancy to become a Christian. Why? Because you can spend a lifetime going over different aspects of the text, and there are some problems in the text that you might not be able to resolve. Are you then going to keep somebody out of the kingdom because you can't resolve a particular passage you're not quite sure of? No, I think that's 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 crazy. So uh, if you're really interested in the topic in inerrancy to a, to, to a more a deeper degree, I'd highly recommend you get this book, When Critics Ask, by my co-author, Dr. Norman Geisler. It's now called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. It goes into uh, 800 supposed uh, problems in the text. And, and let me m- mention one other thing. Differences are not always contradictions. So you can have differences and not have contradictions. In fact, if you didn't have differences, uh, people would think that the New Testament writers colluded about everything. Eyewitnesses always agree on the main facts, but they disagree over the details. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament documents. So to sum it all up, the, the, the key point is the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true. And the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. There would be no New Testament because it was written down mostly by Jewish folks who had no motive to invent a resurrected Jesus. They already thought they were God's chosen people. They never would have invented a resurrected Jesus and then go die for it if it didn't happen. So you don't need inerrancy to be a Christian. I think it's the right conclusion if you are a Christian, but you don't need it to be a Christian. Thank you, Dr. Turk. And just as an add-on to that, could you also speak to a little bit about the internal integrity of the scriptures and the manuscripts? And I believe there's a 99.6 accuracy uh, to those. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, probably from my friend Dan Wallace, who teaches at uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dan is the, the real expert on the manuscript evidence. And in fact, uh, he's teaching a course for us now. If you go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses, you'll see it there. Dan uh, says that the, the main problem is, it's not that we have uh, too little of the Bible. We have too much of the Bible. There's, there's some variant readings that we can't completely reconcile, and we're not exactly sure if it should be in the text or not, like I hinted at earlier when we were talking about the end of the Gospel of Mark from verse 9 to 20. Should that really be in there or not? Because it's only in later manuscripts. So we have too much Bible, not too little. But yes, it's so accurate. Check this out. It is so accurate. I got to find something here. I I like to show you guys books that, um, I don't know if I can find uh, Bart Ehrman's book. I'm sure you've heard of Bart Ehrman, who wrote the book, um, who wrote the book, Misquoting Jesus. You know, he's a skeptic and he he writes this book that tries to get people to believe that we can't reconstruct the New Testament documents. It's called Misquoting Jesus. Well, it turns out that he actually agrees you can reconstruct the New Testament documents because in the second edition of Misquoting Jesus, he's interviewed in the at the end of the book, and he basically says that I agree with Bruce Metzger. Well, who's Bruce Metzger? Bruce Metzger was the top manuscript scholar of the last century. He mentored Ehrman. And he and Metzger actually wrote a book in 2005, the same year that Ehrman put out Misquoting Jesus. He wrote a book about the New Testament documents. He updated Metzger's classic work on it. And in that work, they conclude, yeah, we know what the New Testament documents originally said. The same year, he writes Misquoting Jesus to a general public, and he tries to hint at the idea that, oh, we're not quite sure what the New Testament documents said. But in that interview... 
In the second edition, he admits, yeah, I agree with Bruce Metzger. The New Testament tradition is not in any way compromised by uh, New Testament variants. So the book should not be called Misquoting Jesus. The book should be called Misquoting Airmen. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Dr. Turk, we're going to shift to a, a hard subject, uh, maybe not for you, but for many Christians, and that's the question of evil. And we have quite a few questions on that. The first one is, if God exists and is good, why doesn't he stop disaster and evil in the world? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, I was at Michigan State a number of years ago doing our I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation, and um, I knew there was a militant atheist in the audience because he sat in the audience for the entire two-hour presentation like this. He didn't crack a smile once. And I had some pretty good jokes in there. <laughs> um, anyway, as soon as the Q&A started, his hand shot up. I, I pointed at him. I said, yes, sir, go ahead. And he said, um, if there is a good God in the world, uh, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? And I said, sir, that is an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you and me because we do evil every day. You ever notice that when we're um, thinking about evil, we're always thinking about somebody else doing evil. Why don't you stop him? Why don't you stop her? We never think of ourselves. If God wanted to stop all the evil in the world, he could right away, but he might start with us because we use our free will for evil every day. So God could stop all the evil, but then this would fail to be a moral world because he gives us free will in order to, to love and to do moral things, but unfortunately, free will can also be used to do evil. So God created the, the um, possibility of evil, but we actualize evil by, by choosing evil to, to get something we want. Now, um, I normally show a little video that shows people this concept, and it's, it's such a big con or it's such a big issue, evil, that Obviously, in a Q&A format, we can't cover it all. But let me just say one thing about evil. Evil does not disprove God. In fact, it's impossible to show that God doesn't exist through evil. Why? Because evil wouldn't exist unless good existed, and good wouldn't exist unless God existed. You see, evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil is, is, is a privation or a lack in a good thing. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of, out of the car, you got a better car. If you take all the car out of the rust, you got nothing. You know, you just got a rust spot on the pavement, all right? Uh, evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a body, you got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, you got nothing. In other words, evil doesn't exist on its own. It only exists as a lack in a good thing. Well, good, objectively speaking, can only exist if God exists, because by definition, what we mean by good is the nature of God. Otherwise, everything's just a matter of opinion, it's just your opinion against somebody else's opinion. If there isn't a standard of goodness or righteousness or justice that transcends human beings, then nothing is ultimately good or evil. But everybody knows certain things are good or evil. Everyone knows that, say, torturing babies for fun is wrong. Everybody knows that walking into a school and shooting up school children is wrong. If that's wrong, there must be something that's right. And that rightness is God's nature. So evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it can't disprove God because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. Now, there's so many different directions we could take this at this point. 
I've written a book called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. It, it goes into that topic quite a bit if you want to go further in it. Or if you want to ask a follow-on question to that, now we can. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We're listening to a Q&A with Dr. Frank Turek from our recent Engage 2018 Apologetics Conference. Thanks so much for tuning in. Yeah, actually I would. Uh, and I wouldn't ask this of you unless I knew you could handle it. But you mentioned the torturing of babies. So why does there seem to be an apparent contradiction in terms of God nature with his command and condoning of not maybe the torture of babies, but the killing of babies and the, con- the conquest of the Holy Land? Yeah, I, speaking of the Canaanites, you mean? Correct. Yeah, well, we're about out of time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I've heard other students ask you that on college campuses, and you got a bang-up answer. So, Okay, a cu- cu- couple of things we need to keep in mind when we look at an issue like that. First of all, as I just said, if an atheist brings it up, I always ask the atheist, so what's your standard for judging God in the Old Testament? And an honest atheist will say, well, I don't have a standard because God doesn't exist, so everything's subjective. But he can say, and it's a good tactic for an atheist to say, yeah, but it's a problem for you. As a Christian, if you're going to claim God is good, why does he kill children in the Old Testament? Right? It's a good question. So the first question I normally ask people is, when God decides to judge people in the Old Testament, does he give reasons or is it just like he's a mafia boss? He wakes up one morning and says, Canaanites, I want them dead. No, he gives reasons. In fact, there's 400 years worth of reasons, according to the Old Testament. These Canaanites were involved in all sorts of of horrific practices, including the sacrifice of their own children to a metal idol by the name of Molech. It was this kind of bullheaded thing that was made out of metal, and it had arms that were held out like this. I don't know if you can see my arms, but they're held out like this. And they would heat this idol up, and then they would put their babies, as old as four years old, on this these arms of this idol, and they would basically sizzle the child to death. Plutarch, a Greek writer, writes that, so this isn't just in the Bible, this is actually in other writers, that the the drum players in these villages, in these Canaanite villages, would play the drums louder so so the parents of these children couldn't hear the screams of their own children. Now, on every college campus I go to, I hear atheists say, well, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? Well, here's an instance where God says, I'm going to jump in and stop it, and the atheists are complaining about it. You know, like, well, you can't have it both ways. You want him to stop it or not? And they'll say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, he stopped it, but he went too far because then he killed children. God did. You know, he could have just stopped the adults, and that would have been righteous, but he, he goes on to kill the children. That doesn't seem right. Okay, let's look at that problem. Now, there's two views on this among evangelical scholars. One view is put forth by Paul Copan. Do you guys know who Paul Copan is? Sorry. You heard of Paul Copan? He's written a book called Is God a Moral Monster? I'm looking, at, looking for it on my shelf right now. Oh, there it is right there. This is the book. You guys seen this book right here? Is God a Moral Monster? It's a great book. Paul deals not only with this issue, but several other issues in the Old Testament in particular. And Paul's point is, 
If you read one of the passages like, say, Deuteronomy 7, it'll say something like, okay, wipe everybody out. And the very next verse it'll say, and then don't intermarry with them. And you're going, wait a minute. How can, if you're wiping everybody out, why would you have a command after that to not intermarry with them? If they're all dead, you can't intermarry with them. What's the point? And Copan's point is, many of these commands appear to be hyperbolic. In other words, they're exaggerations for effect. Like we might say, well, we annihilated the other team. Really? They no longer exist? No, they're still there. We just beat them badly. And he says that's the kind of language that's often used, not only in the Bible, but in other ancient Near East texts. They exaggerate for effect. So Copan is saying, look, it probably was never the case that these were literal commands to wipe everybody out, the women and the children. They were exaggerated commands. And the real command was to push these people out of the land so the Israelites could get in the land and bring forth the promised uh, people to bring forth the promised Messiah. Now, Clay Jones, who teaches at Biola, says, no, I don't agree with that. I think that these were literal commands to wipe everybody out. Let's just let's go with Clay Jones's interpretation because it's a harder interpretation. Let's say God really commanded the death of everybody in this community. Here's my question. When God kills somebody, is it murder for God? Is it? No. No, God God can't murder anyone. Why? Because God's the giver of life. God can resurrect life anytime he wants. He's the giver. He's the taker. He can do whatever he wants with life. We can't take innocent life because we're not God. I mean, you hear the term all, you hear this term quite a bit, play God. Don't play God. What does that mean? Well, it implies, first of all, that God can play God. In other words, that God has the authority to take life when he wants to take it. And the point here is, is that if, if God, as Clay Jones points out, says that these people um, should be judged regardless of what age they are, this whole community needs to be judged, God has the authority to take people. In fact, think about it this way. If Christianity is true, people don't really die, they just change location. They go from this life to the next life. Now, God can take somebody's life anytime he wants. He can take your life at two years old or 82 years old. That's up to him. And so if these are literal commands, God has the authority to take life. Now, I hasten to add that these commands were for for a very short period of time for a very specific reason. These are not like Islamic jihad, which says go and kill everybody who's not a believer. These were very specific commands for a very specific instance, judging people based on the horrific practices that they were practicing. Now, let me let me add one other thing. I had this question at Central Oklahoma University not long ago. In fact, you can go to YouTube and see it. A young lady got up to the microphone and was saying, look, I can't believe in a good God because uh, the God of the Bible, because, you know, he does this stuff in the Old Testament. And I asked her this question. I said, I understand it is a hard problem. I agree with you. But let me ask you this question. Do you consider yourself pro-life or pro-abortion? And she said, oh, well, well, I'm pro-abortion. I'm, you know, I'm pro-choice and all this. And I said, forgive me for saying this, but let me ask you this. Why is it that when God plays God in the Old Testament and he decides who lives and who dies, that's immoral. But when you play God here today, and you decide who lives and who dies through abortion, that's a moral right. Can you justify that for me? Exactly. No, she couldn't. We want to play God all the time, but we get, we get upset when God plays God. 
So again, if you want to go further on that problem, no, no, it's that's a big great. problem. I gave a couple of answers here. Get Copan's book, Is Got a Moral Monster? And then look up Clay Jones on the internet because Clay writes on this as well. Wonderful. Dr. Turk, let's shift to the moral argument now. This question says, when people use the quote-unquote herd mentality, in other words, we do good to one another for the survival of our species or herd, as a rebuttal to the morality argument, what should we say? Oh, that's an excellent question that C.S. Lewis, of course, has already dealt with. In fact, if you look at um, mere Christianity, I think that's where he deals with this. He says it can't be a herd mentality. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. I'll just give you Lewis's answer first. Um, he says that if, I think he gives the example of somebody drowning. He says, imagine you see somebody drowning and, um, or let me, let me give you even another example. I think he uses drowning. He might use mugging too. Let's use the mugging example. Let's suppose you see somebody being mugged, right? You've probably got two competing instincts. Like one says, hey, go help that guy. Uh, and the other instinct says, no, don't get involved. You'll get hurt yourself. In fact, you might want to run away from this situation. And Lewis points out that actually you probably have a stronger instinct for self-preservation than you do to help somebody. But he says, then there's kind of a third thing that comes in and says you ought to do the, the first. You ought to go help the person. In fact, you ought to do what you don't want to do. <laughs> you ought to help the person. And, he, and Lewis says that that third thing that comes in can't be one of the two instincts. It's got to be a third thing that says you ought to help the other person. Now, that third thing is what Lewis and others would call the moral law. It's uh, our conscience that God is telling us you ought to go help the mugger, despite the fact that you might have a stronger urge to run away and save yourself. So that can't be one of the two instincts. It's not just a herd mentality. And I deal with this quite a bit in both books. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and stealing from God. But let me point out that regardless of any scenario atheists come up with to try and explain why we do good and why we do evil, they often, they often make the mistake of confusing how we know something with that something is good. In other words, they confuse epistemology, that's how you know right from wrong, from ontology, which is the study of why something is right or wrong, or the study of being. So atheists will say, and Christopher Hitchens said this in our debates. You guys know who Christopher Hitchens was? Yes, sir. Christopher Hitchens was a brilliant British atheist, and he sounded even more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. <laughs> anyway, Hitchens would, you know, during our debates say, well, are you claiming I'm not a good guy, or are you claiming I'm a bad person? Are you claiming that I don't know morality? I said, no, 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 I'm not claiming any of that. I'm not saying you're a bad guy. I'm not saying you can't, you can't live a good life. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is you can't justify what good is, because if there is no standard beyond yourself, then everything is just a matter of personal opinion. You can't judge the Nazis if there's no standard beyond you and the Nazis. That's just your opinion. So... Uh, we're not talking about how you know right from wrong. We're not talking about whether or not you have to believe in God to be a good person or anything. That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is, why does this thing called goodness actually exist, and why are we obligated to follow it? If there's no God, that doesn't exist, and you have no obligation to follow anything. So 
I always get back to that distinction between epistemology and ontology. Don't confuse those two. They're important. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of our Q&A with Dr. Frank Turek. Next week, we're going to get to the second part of the Q&A with Dr. Frank Turek. It was an incredible time at the conference. Stay tuned for more conferences just like that coming before you know it. You can stay up to date with all that at thebestfacts.com. Again, thebestfacts.com. That's kind of our apologetic site. And I'll also try to post info at godsolutionshow.com as well. Well, the gospel really is true. We can know with certainty that Jesus is who he says he is, that he offers what he says he can offer, and that he proved it by dying for our sins and rising again. If you've never believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord, why wait another day? You could take that step right now. You could say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible says that if you believe in him as Savior and Lord, that you'll be adopted into his family and that you'll be guaranteed a life of meaning and purpose on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. I hope that you'll take that step if you haven't already. Well, Keep tuning into The God Solution. Like I said, next week we'll have the second part of this incredible Q&A with Dr. Frank Turk. You don't want to miss it. While you're waiting, go to godsolutionshow.com. That's godsolutionshow.com to get past interviews. We're going to have more great interviews coming soon. So definitely keep going to godsolutionshow.com and sharing the site with your friends and letting them know about the show as well. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.